So Jay, what's the deal with that flight attendant lady who shows up in the Colossus one-shot? She's Miss Locke in disguise. Well, I mean, she's a robot Miss Locke in disguise, but same basic principle. Uh, no, I mean, have we seen that lady before? I mean, she and Piotr seem awfully familiar. Well, yes and no. How so? Okay, so, the woman the Miss Locke robot is pretending to be is Elizabeth Wilford, who was a friend of Amanda Sefton's. Elizabeth first appeared in 1976 in X-Men number 98, and went on a double date with Colossus alongside Amanda and Nightcrawler some 20 issues later. Oh, nice. Uh, how'd it go? Not great. They were all kidnapped by Arcade. Oh, which is why Arcade knows to have Miss Locke impersonate Elizabeth. Well, yes, except... Except? In X-Men 98, Elizabeth's first name is spelled Elizabeth with an S. And in the Colossus one-shot, it's spelled Elizabeth with a Z. I'm not really seeing the problem. I mean, typos and spelling errors happen. That doesn't mean it's a different character. And normally, I would absolutely agree with you. But the thing is, there is actually another character in the Marvel Universe named Elizabeth Wilford who spells her first name with a Z. Is this one of those Claremont forgetting and reusing names things, like the Madeline's Pryor, or the Dazzlers, or the Jubilees? Nah, not this time. Uh, the Elizabeths were created by two different writers. Elizabeth with a Z Wilford made her first appearance in Captain Marvel number 48, which weirdly came out the same year as X-Men number 98, where Elizabeth with an S debuted. Huh, good year for Elizabeth Wilfords. So what's Elizabeth with a Z's deal? Is she also a flight attendant? She is not. She and her husband Ethan are kindly old farmers from Texas. Sounds like a recipe for trouble. I mean, as far as I know, they're still alive, at least. Well, that's nice to hear. Well, the Rune and the Accuser did blow up their house. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 421 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, well, not Excalibur exactly, but some Excalibur tie-ins. Excalibrish? They're Excalibrish. Excalibritish? Oh, that just gets complicated. But yes, we have long alluded to a Colossus one-shot, including in this very cold open that we just finished, that happened a little while ago. We're finally getting to it. And an issue of X-Men Unlimited that also answers some very important Excalibur-related questions. And it's a little weird that we're doing Excalibur spin-offs right as the series is about to end. Like, I think we're going to have maybe two Excalibur issues dealing with the numbered issues left before Volume 1's done. Gotta fit them in somewhere. We do, and I'm kind of glad to, in part because they cover some stuff that's been referred to, or will be referred to in Excalibur, and I kind of want to complete the whole thing, but it's funny. As much as this last era of Excalibur has not been as exciting as the previous ones, I find myself in the place of starting to really miss this book that is going to be gone. Yeah, it feels like losing not only the current kind of weak Excalibur, but the foundation on which it's built, which includes things like the Davis run and the Claremont and Davis run, and, and, like, even if those are no longer there, like, these are still things that are kind of growing from those roots. 
Totally. I mean, we've been covering the Excalibur comics for literal years at this point, and quite a few of them. It's true. We are we are wizened now. That's right. We're grizzled, but like still very attractive because I can only assume that Alan Davis or Brian Hitch is drawing us. Oh, outrageously attractive. Mm. Look great in turtlenecks. Indubitably. Anyway, before we jump into this Colossus one-shot, let's talk a little bit about what led up to it, because we are steeped in continuity right now. Okay, so remember Excalibur, let's say, 113? Uh, kind of, and I wouldn't blame listeners if they didn't, because that was way back in episode 387 of this show. Which might as well be, like, the 20th century. Anyway, at that point, Excalibur, uh, Europe's premier and mostly mutant superhero team, was temporarily split up. We say Europe's premier superhero team because, of course, at this point, England was, or Britain was still part of the European Union. Hmm. There was no Brexecution, or whatever they called it. Uh, Brexitanic? There we go. That's after the, the whole British Empire gets sucked into the time stream for a while. Comes back with a mullet and a kind of cool-looking superhero costume that Miles used to love to draw. Gets, like, aggressively transphobic. Was that a thing? Uh, I mean, that's a thing in the UK now. Oh, I thought you meant Brian Braddock. No, uh, well, no, well, I, I assume he he's cool. I, I don't know, he seems fairly progressive. He's got a good heart. Anyway, the point is Excalibur was split up. Right, so Nightcrawler and Pete Wisdom were in Germany, Wolfsbane and Douglock were in the United States in the New Mutants Truth or Death miniseries. And Colossus, you know, former X-Man with the power to transform his skin into organic steel and an almost comically tragic past, and Megan, an empathic and magical metamorph who helped found Excalibur with her currently absent fiancé Captain Britain, were on a flight to take a vacation at the French theme park Dudley World. Then their plane was blown up by an assassin, and they spent some time at the High Evolutionary Citadel of Science, but he basically went, eh, fuck you, I don't want you here after all, and just teleported them back to their main storyline. Which is to say, a theme park in France. Which brings us back to a little over a year from our current Excalibur coverage to Colossus No. 1, A Most Dangerous Game. This is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary, colored by Jason Wright, and lettered, of course, by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Okay, I have an objection immediately, although I like this issue overall. It's called Colossus? It should be Colossus and Megan! They are co-stars! They are equal protagonists! It's just like the Beast miniseries should have been called the Karma and Beast miniseries. Yes, absolutely agreed. I guess Beast is a more prominent character than Karma, and Colossus is a more prominent character than Megan, and so I'm sure they were just doing it for sales, but damn it, I object. At least Sabretooth and Mystique got to co-star in their own title's title. Well, right, that's why you have the less prominent character headline and then add the and, like Kitty Pride and Wolverine. That's true, there is that precedent from many, many moons ago. Well, it's a smart marketing move, because you give the character you're introducing that name recognition, but then you have the character with name recognition there to sell the comics to the people who might not be familiar with or as fond of the newer character. Although in this case, I guess trying to make Megan more of a household name wouldn't have been as useful, because Excalibur is about to end, and she will never be as prominent of a character again. So back to Colossus number one. There is no Colossus number two, this is just Colossus number one. This is a fairly vanilla arcade story, although it does not involve giant clear pinballs, and I kind of resent that. It does have some fun traps, including the return of one of my favorite arcade schemes, but we'll get to that. Yeah, but the giant clear pinballs are an arcade classic. Like, they used to be one of his calling cards. Still, still, if he did it every time, it wouldn't be as interesting. I mean, I'm sure he could find ways to mix it up. He's a clever little man. 
oh themed pinball games like like one of the local portland barcades where there's you know terminator pinball and lord of the rings pinball and mars attacks pinball precisely Anyway, Megan and Colossus are indeed in Paris. They're here for Dudley World, and we see that fun immediately on the title page, which I love. It's Colossus posing all impressively and warrior-like on a rocky spire surrounded by all these skulls on stakes, and Megan's at his feet doing that fantasy damsel thing where she's clutching his leg, but she's just sort of smirking, and she starts to say, Voulez-vous que Megan? Kidding! <laughs> I love the idea that Megan learned French from popular music. Oh, she absolutely would have. Megan is a pop culture junkie, and that hasn't been as addressed in this run of Excalibur, but that's where she learned about the world because she was stuck being hidden by her parents away from it due to her bat-like appearance as a young person. So, they are they are here for fun. This is an actual vacation. Their plan is to hit a museum and then Dudley World. But that fun tone continues. Like, they are just so playful with each other. They have that kind of friendship. And I love that, because Colossus has been through so very much tragedy, and he's just starting to get over it. This is the first time in years he's been allowed to be anything other than someone who is sad and makes poor decisions because he is sad. Megan brings that out in him. And if nothing else, I love this one-shot for that. Of course, the closeness of that friendship is then going to backfire at them very shortly in Excalibur due to feelings and the, the misperception of said feelings. Ah, they'll, they'll be fine eventually. But it's fun. It feels a little like old Excalibur in that regard. Right. Now, they are, they are on a vacation. They are here to have a good time and not particularly do he- superhero stuff. And their plan specifically is to hit a museum and then Dudley World. And they're going to do this despite the fact that the colorist appears to have decided that the entire issue takes place at night. It is strange. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be day, but eh, what can you do? So, Pyotr jumps them down from a fifth-story balcony, changing to steel at the last second, um, which makes the scene and also gratuitously wrecks some sidewalk, which is, is a choice. Eh, uh, you know, one time I was having a really good day after a really rough spot and I got a speeding ticket. Sometimes you make poor decisions when you're happy. Fair enough, and and... He's definitely got little enough experience being happy that I could see him not really being prepared for the the choices he might make in the process thereof. Oh god, Colossus is to happiness as Shinobi Shaw is to sex. Oh god! Like, he's heard of it, and he thinks it's something that you do upside down. (laughs) Oh, Piotr. Oh, Shinobi. Wow, we just created the worst rare pair ship ever. So anyway, they are being watched by somebody with a plan, but their first stop is is the Musée d'Orsay. Oh, that's the, muse- that's the museum in Paris that has that really big clock that people take silhouetted pictures in front of. I love that clock. I want to see it someday in person. And I guess also do other stuff in France, which I'm sure has many, many very cool things that are not that one clock. That's really nerdy of you, and I really appreciate it. What? It's a cool clock. And I'm glad. Colossus, meanwhile, pensively identifies with Picasso's blue period, which is fair. Although I feel like Colossus... I'm trying to think of whether, like, Colossus at his worst was ever as much of an asshole as Picasso. No, no. And I say this about someone who almost killed Pete Wisdom. Okay, fair. Colossus, not Picasso. Well, him too, actually. Anyway, their museum trip checked off the list. They are off to Dudley World, which appears to be some kind of a Disney World analog. It's hard to say, because they don't get to go into it. Yeah, it's closed indefinitely for renovations, or so at least claims the sign and the automated recording. It also may be closed because, again, it's the middle of the fucking night. Well, according to the colorist, anyway. But I love afterward when Megan is all disappointed. 
And Colossus tells her, Pouting won't help. <laughs> no, but it makes me happy. And Brian Hitch, oh, we've talked about Brian Hitch's art, but he does such a good job here. His art is, of course, very reminiscent of Alan Davis's, especially because mm. he's being inked by Paul Neary, who used to ink Davis a lot. But he just draws characters' faces as realistic, but so expressive. He does such a good, intense pout scowl on Megan's face. It's wonderful. So they're at a cafe, Megan's still sulking, when Elizabeth Wilford shows up. This is the Elizabeth Wilford of the cold open. This is the one whose name was originally spelled with an S, but is here spelled with a Z, who is, is the flight attendant who went on a date with Colossus and got kidnapped by Arcade. And um, this is, in fact, this this is, in fact, not, not her. This is actually a robot disguised as Miss Locke, disguised as Elizabeth Wilford. But the point is... It appears to be Elizabeth Wilford, and Colossus believes it to be Elizabeth Wilford, at least until she takes Megan out with a poisoned handshake, and then Peter with a poisoned kiss, and an ambulance staffed by Arcade's goons, wrap him up and take him away to Dudley World, refitted as Murder World. And this being Murder World, this being the murder theme park that Arcade continually redesigns to destroy his victims in entertaining ways, Colossus wakes up in what seems to be Avalon. Magneto's Whoa. old space fortress from when Colossus was working for Magneto as an acolyte. Now, things are a little off here. First of all, Exodus appears to be kind of standing in for Fabian Cortez. Okay, to be fair, Arcade wasn't there in Avalon, so he's probably having to piece all of this together from some indirect sources. Yeah, things scrawled on bathroom walls. For a good betrayal call. Right? And... Megan is dead, floating in space, and Colossus recognizes that this is clearly not Avalon. Avalon crashed to Earth. He left Avalon. This is not real, but he's concerned for Megan's safety, so he busts through a wall to rescue her and lands by his family home in Siberia, which is on fire. The home, not all of Siberia. I mean, it might be all of Siberia. We just see a little part of it. And so he bursts into that flaming house to find his parents, once again, dead. I mean, that's already happened, but he didn't see it last time, so I guess this is an improvement. But that's not the best part, which I- okay, I realized that that sounded really bad. Better than dead parents? What could it be? I mean, Batman sure doesn't know, but for, for us, it is definitely the reappearance of none other than the proletarian. The fucking proletarian from that arcade story we've referenced a couple of times. Jay, how do we begin to describe the glory that is the proletarian? The proletarian is a superhero arcade made up as Pyotr Rasputin if he had stayed in the Soviet Union. Yeah. And, and stayed exclusively loyal to the Soviet Union. He's called the proletarian. He's got a red worker's cap, red overalls with no shirt that have, have the, the Soviet Union's initials in, in Russian the hammer and a sickle, and a picture of Vladimir Lenin's face on them. See, that's the part that I especially love. It reminds me of those old Halloween costumes that kids would get, like, back in the 80s, where, you know, you'd be Wonder Woman, but for some reason on the shirt part of the costume would be Wonder Woman's face, even though you were supposed to be Wonder Woman. Wouldn't it need to be a Vladimir Lenin costume, then? Well, you know, in, in, in Soviet Russia, 80s Halloween costumes were a little different. There were some cultural differences. I see. I wonder, I, God, I wish that people had done more with that in pop culture with, like, actual characters' costumes during that era. I feel like Booster Gold would have worn a costume with his face on it. Oh, God, he totally would have, yeah. Just, like, smiling the, with the same shit-eating celebrity grin. Absolutely. Anyway, Megan comes to outside, not, in fact, being dead in space, puts out the fire with her elemental powers, and then flies in to save everyone who must be trapped inside— 
only to be attacked by... The proletarian, whom she at first assumes to be a brainwashed colossus, but real colossus shows up to the rescue and explains his stance on this whole proletarian business fairly well. Though I departed Mother Russia to become an X-Man, not even once did I betray her in my heart. I chose to use my powers, my mutant gift, to protect not only our precious socialist republic, but the world as well. You foolishly assumed I suffered any guilt for that decision, and tried to manipulate my emotions once before, villain. You failed the first time we met, and you have failed yet again, Arcade! Oh snap. I love that Colossus puts two and two together. Like, well done. I, I always really appreciate when writers don't write the big guy as being dumb or naive, because Colossus isn't. He's never been that way. Like, yeah, he's sort of noble, but that's never made him ignorant, and he hasn't seen as much of the world when he first joins the X-Men, but that was back in 70s comics. He's seen a lot since then. And space. And space. I have to give it to Ben Robb. He really does write both of these characters, both Colossus and Megan, as characters who have been through a lot and who have actually gotten to change and grow and learn and improve. Agreed. Now, Colossus somehow busts through something to Arcade's control room, where Megan is somehow already restrained in a floating chair, despite having been right there with him in the previous panel. And Arcade has a proposition. Wah, wah, wah. Not that kind. He was hired to kill Colossus, but his employers, the ones that hired him to kill Colossus, creep him out, so he wants Colossus to help him fake both of their deaths instead. Colossus is a little suspicious, because a later time when they met, not the time with the proletarian, but a later time when Arcade fought the X-Men, Arcade tricked Colossus and Kitty into helping him, saying that someone put a contract on him with Doctor Doom, but he was actually just trying to kill the X-Men as part of a contest with the original, non-robot, alive Miss Locke. So you can see how Piotr might raise a metal eyebrow. Yeah, Arcade is not someone to be trusted, and I'm a little disappointed that he sticks to his word in this story. Yeah, spoilers. I know, I know. So, uh, Colossus says, sure, he'll do it. However, Megan's still unconscious, and she doesn't wake up until the both of them are strapped into a murderous roller coaster being attacked by spikes and stuff. At which point, Colossus makes the inexplicable decision not to let her in on the plan. I mean, you know, they're busy, he's distracted. Like, Arcade has animated the Dudley World Dragon to attack them, which makes me very happy to see Megan's reaction. How- Dare you turn my favorite cartoon star into a ten-ton engine of mass destruction! Creative license, babe! My amassed fortune of blood money helps me buy the rights! There's a big, deliberately overdramatic fight, which is pretty fun. And then everyone apparently sinks and dies in quicksand. We see them next, all in, in the ambulance together, and Arcade tells Colossus that, in fact, the client who took out the hit on him was Black Air. You know, the spy organization that Excalibur has thwarted multiple times, that Pete Wisdom defected from to join Excalibur. Man, what do they got against Colossus personally? Yeah, I don't know. You'd think they would hate Megan an equal amount. But, uh, anyway, Colossus and Megan go on their way, only to, once again, meet up with Arcade and Robot Miss Locke on the ship back to the UK, with the two villains in wonderful, terrible disguises. They're all in terrible disguises. They are, it's true. But I do love Megan's ick face when she realizes that 
arcade and lock are there like she's sort of scrunching up her face in disgust and her ears are all like elf pointy and sticking out straight sideways i really appreciate when artists remember that she's a metamorph and that her immediate emotional state can impact her appearance somewhat yeah agreed so, yeah, I mean, this issue is not really relevant to continuity, like, at all. I mean, the only real effect is we learned that Black Air is after Excalibur, which we kind of already knew. We did. But it's fun, and so much of that is Colossus and Megan getting to have a good time, and so much of it is Brian Hitch's art just being a delightful, perfect fit for these characters and this type of plot. Yeah, I was gonna say, Hitch's art really carries the issue. Oh, so good. So good. I can't believe that the artist that drew this issue is kind of the biggest inspiration for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Wow. Weird, huh? I mean, Arcade doesn't show up at all. <laughs> That's phase six. Anyway, we have another Excalibur story for you. Another non-Excalibur Excalibur story. Yeah, one of those. But let's talk about what leads up to it. So this one takes place about where we are in Excalibur continuity, but... It focuses on some stuff that happened a while back, so let's recap a bit. Kurt Wagner, aka Nightcrawler's origin is is complicated, and that's before we even think about the Draco. But everyone seems to agree that after being abandoned by his mother Mystique, he was taken in by Margali Sardos, a fortune teller at a German circus. And also that Margali's biological daughter Jemaine uh, developed a romantic relationship with her foster brother, which makes me feel a, a little weird, but I guess they both seem to be having a good time, so alright. And also Kurt killed his foster brother Stefan, because Stefan made Kurt promise that he'd kill him if he ever went evil, and he did, and he did. As happens. A while after Kurt left Germany and its angry mobs to join the X-Men, he encountered Jemaine again, this time going by Amanda Sefton and now working as a flight attendant slash sorceress. He also encountered their adoptive mom, Margali, now revealed to be a semi-villainous sorceress, continually trying to gain power on a magical path called the Winding Way. Uh, one time she trapped him in Dante's Inferno because she was mad about the whole brother-killing thing. It was a whole thing. Margali was also somewhat obsessed with the Hell Dimension where Eliana Rasputin, that's Colossus's younger sister, spent her childhood. That's Limbo. And obsessed with the Soul Sword, a weapon Ilyana created that grew to symbolize both rulership over Limbo and exceptionally contradictory continuity. We're not even going to try to explain the Soul Sword here. We have done our best previously, but a lot of it is just kind of inexplicable. More recently, Amanda spent some time as a member of Excalibur as the magical superhero Daytripper. But after Excalibur thwarted Margali's latest evil scheme, summoning a demon that almost destroyed London, Amanda grew cold and suddenly quit without even saying goodbye to Kurt. Which indirectly brings us to X-Men Unlimited number 19, Unforgiven. Written by James Hetfield, wait, that's the other Unforgiven. Written by Ben Robb, penciled by Jim Calafiore, inked by Mark McKenna, colored by Ian Laughlin, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And we open a Nightcrawler's old circus in Winseldorf, Germany, where... A robed lady is killing everyone to draw power from their deaths. But I guess at least it's like ironically? Oh yeah, didn't you didn't you know magic is actually powered by irony? I mean, I think it kind of is. Like the fire breather has been burned to death, the contortionist has been twisted around a post, the strong man's head has been crushed by a 10-ton weight, and then this lady stabs the conjoined twins with a double-bladed dagger. And speaking of the sorceress doing things with panache, her words as she commits these various murders? By the hoary hosts and the unholy ghosts, 
for the fire that burns and the orb that turns across the way that winds and the specter divine beneath the stars on high and Mother Moon's watchful eye. It's like the most evil, mystical children's book ever. I, I love it. Would you sacrifice a goat? Would you do it on a boat? <laughs> Well, speaking of circuses, Nightcrawler's training on Muir Island, you know, Excalibur's base, in a holographic simulation of his old circus days. And at this point in continuity, he's been reminiscing about the old days a lot. He's in his old costume, he's got his old haircut, he's shaved off his beard, he's talking about the X-Men a lot with Colossus and with Shadowcat. He's kind of having the closest thing you can have to a midlife crisis when you can't age past 29. Yeah, pretty much. He's like one of those people that peaked in high school, except high school was the X-Men, and he didn't actually peak then because Excalibur's been great, but Ben Robb likes the X-Men better than Excalibur. Ouch. Alas, everything in the holographic simulation turns evil, and Nightcrawler's immediately pissed off that Nightmare, you know, the villain that sucks people into their nightmares, would come back so soon when they just defeated him back in number 119. I do appreciate the meta reference there. But it's not Nightmare. In fact, it's Nightmare's boss, for whom Nightmare and the Banffs were apparently working in those Excalibur issues. That is Belasco, the former ruler of Limbo. Right, right. Now, Ilyana kicked Belasco out of Limbo at the end of the Magic miniseries way back in the day when she took over. But Belasco since then has taken Limbo back over with Ilyana out of the way. He showed up a few times in other books. He was in Punisher, he was in Alpha Flight, he was in Cable— and now he's here. So, Belasco's deal is that he wants to permanently take over the Winding Way, which is this, this path of magical ascension. And he wants the means to do this in exchange for releasing Margali Zardos, uh, Nightcrawler's adoptive mom, whom Belasco apparently now has hostage. Yeah, she sort of got sucked into hell at the end of the London's Burning storyline near the end of Warren Ellis' run, and apparently this is the hell that she got sucked into. As one does. And now she is naked and filthy and surprisingly young-looking, although she does use a lot of glamour, so I guess that's fine, in a cage over these flames in Limbo. And credit to Califiore, the artist, despite being naked and in a 90s comic, she's actually not really sexualized. She just looks like she's been through a lot of horrible experiences for a long time. But there's worse news to come. Um, Belasco shows Nightcrawler all the, his, his dead circus comrades and tells him that Amanda is, in fact, the sorceress we saw committing those murders. Yeah, uh, sounds like the evil apple didn't fall far from the evil tree. Like, Margali Sardos, every time she shows up, she's like, Oh, Kurt, I'm not really that bad. And he's like, well, I'll have to learn to forgive you. And we the readers are like, dude, Margali, you have done exclusively terrible things like every time you've showed up. Yeah, there's gotta be a point where you say, I wish you all the best, but please stay real far away from me. Right? So, uh, Nightcrawler doesn't exactly trust Belasco, but he's kinda gotta follow up on this, especially since Amanda just disappeared and he's worried about her. So he heads out to Germany to check out what's happened to the circus. And he decides he's gonna do it by himself, because Colossus and Shadowcat have such bad associations with Limbo, and he never even considers bringing anyone else. Colossus and Shadowcat do catch wind of this and try to stop him. And Kurt cuts them off at the pass. This is a family matter. I'd rather not involve strangers. Kitty replies. Strangers? That really hurts. After all we've been through together, as X-Men, as Excalibur, as friends, I would have thought we're family too. Guess not. 
Kirk's been kind of a dick lately. Do you remember when he called the X-Mansion recently and Marrow picked up and he asked to talk to the real X-Men? Yeah, I don't buy Ben Rob's Nightcrawler. Yeah, mostly he's fine, but sometimes he's just a dick. Anyway, at the circus, when Nightcrawler gets there, along with a lot of blood, is, in fact, Amanda Sefton. Well... Well, okay, she looks like Amanda Sefton, and Kurt's pretty sure that she's Amanda Sefton, but she is very aloof, even as he flirts a ton with her. She just keeps sort of shutting him down very coldly. And once you know why, it just gets so awkward to read this. Uh, spoiler, she's she's actually Margali who switched their bodies. Kurt's flirting with his mom. Ugh, I mean, having your having a relationship with your foster sibling is one thing, but with your mom, that's that's quite another. And she tells Kurt, in the guise of Amanda, that is, that Belasco was the one who murdered everyone, and they've got to make him pay. She needs Kurt to do what he did for his foster brother Stefan years ago, saying, Swear the vengeance oath! Give me your blood! Yeah, I get a voicemail from American Red Cross like every two days asking that. I guess I should really make another appointment. It's been a while. So that reminds me tangentially. That Planned Parenthood will do this thing where they'll, if they have to leave you voicemail or if someone else answers the phone, they'll ask who you want them to say is calling. Because a really common thing in abusive relationships, both romantic and, and like familial, is, is birth control, sabotage, and control. But I checked with them once because I was curious. And that extends to like if you ask them to call and say it's Batman and I'm reminding you to pick up your birth control pills, they'll do it. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, I don't want to disappoint Batman. Right? Nice. Well, we do soon find out what we and you, the listeners, now know because we just spoiled it. Amanda and Margali are swapped. The minds of each are in the bodies of the other. Paging Dr. Claremont. So when exactly did this happen? When did the body swap happen? That is an excellent question because there's no moment at which it's clear. It might have happened when Amanda and Kurt went to Germany to look for their missing mom in Excalibur number 102 after she was sucked into hell. We do hear laughter in the background near her her wagon. It's definitely before Amanda quits the team in Excalibur number 108, but that still leaves like a six-month period where the swap may have happened. Now, the one person who is immediately aware of the swap— Now, Belasco doesn't know more. Belasco thinks he's got Margali. But the demonic nightcrawler— from Limbo. That's the one who we first saw in the Magic miniseries years and years and years ago, immediately recognizes that this is Amanda in Margali's body. And he says he'll free her if she steals Belasco's soul sword for him so he can take over Limbo. Okay, this part is weird, because this evil Nightcrawler, who we can distinguish from regular Kurt because his skin is more black than blue and he's just wearing a loincloth— he was killed in the Magic miniseries. So was the version of version of Shadowcat that was corrupted in Limbo in the alternate Limbo timeline and became a feline warrior named Cat. And yet we see Evil Nightcrawler, and Cat is referenced at one point. So, what's going on here? Is this a past version of Limbo? Is that even a thing? Does time even make sense in Limbo? The easiest explanation here is that time just works differently in Limbo. And in fact, at one point, Nightcrawler does describe Limbo as. A timeless hell where today is yesterday and tomorrow may never be. I'll take it. You know, I actually kind of like that. Like, you can see this as a continuity error, but Limbo gets a lot creepier when you realize that it's just sort of sideways to continuity and causality. That means it's unpredictable. That means that tragedies can happen that don't necessarily make any sense, but still feel and are in some ways just as real. 
Yeah, I really dig that. I Again, I agree that this probably wasn't deliberate, but I like the accidental implications a lot. For real. It does make a little more sense for Belasco to have the Soul Sword, that snarl of continuity in Blade form. Like, whether or not the Soul Sword existed before Ilyana, which is apparently quite debatable, Belasco did capture Margali after Excalibur number 100, and she did have the Soul Sword because Amanda foolishly gave it to her, so... Okay, Belasco can be here, he can have the Soul Sword, fine. So, Nightcrawler and Margali, whom he still believes to be Amanda, get to Limbo, and they approach Belasco's castle gates, uh, complete with dozens of skeletons impaled on spikes, because, you know, Belasco is, is a fairly classic demon lord. And they are attacked by Sim. Remember Sim? Oh yeah, Sim, big purple dude, named after Dave Sim, the writer of Cerebus the Aardvark, who later got real weird about women. Uh, Dave Sim, not Sim, although Sim's kind of a jerk too. Anyway, he shows up, he is still covered in circuitry, because remember, the techno-organic virus that came from Warlock and Magus did infect Limbo a while ago, and he attacks. And Nightcrawler and Margali, who looks like Amanda, kick Sim's ass, but Sim does magically rip off Margali's Amanda disguise. So, did you notice how weird Margali looks after the disguise gets ripped off? Yeah, it doesn't look right. It's like it's her head on a completely unrelated body. Right, and her head is surrounded by this, like, green aura of energy, which really makes it look pasted on. It's never quite aligned properly with the rest of her body or scaled, and it, like, it looks like a really, really shitty paste-up job. So I have an explanation for that, again, whether it's deliberate or not. Margali is fully in Amanda's body. Like, this is not a, a glamour, this is actually Amanda's physical body, her daughter's body. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea that Sim just sort of ripped a hole through physical reality to reveal the magical truth beneath, that it was really Margali's identity there, and that's why it's not lined up right, because there are almost two planes of conceptual existence that are now just sort of crammed next to each other. Oh, see, my explanation was going to be that the artist forgot to draw Margali in and just drew in Amanda and so had to do a really quick patch-up job. We will never know. Uh, Jim Calafiore, if you remember this one issue from, like, decades ago and you remember that part, uh, drop us a line. Yeah, what's up with Margali's head? In that one panel of that one comic. It's for several pages. Well, I suppose so. And Margali tries to explain herself to her foster son after this. This was her only option to avoid Belasco taking over the winding way. She had to get herself out of limbo, even if it meant putting her daughter into harm's and torture's way. Bullshit. Yet, to Kurt's credit, he turns away when she asks him to forgive her. Like, again, I probably would have uh, told Margali to never talk to me again way before Kurt does, but at least he's not taken in by this. So there's a big fight in the castle. Evil Nightcrawler does indeed free Amanda in Margali's body, as he said he would, but before she can get the sword to him, Belasco catches him and, and yeah, vaporizes him. And Kurt's sword, actually, Evil Nightcrawler does throw him a sword with which to fight Belasco, which is, is pretty cool. And his sword, plus the sorceress's magic, knock the soul sword off the balcony, and then Belasco into a bottomless pit. So, yay, they win. And after Margali body-swaps back with the now-freed Amanda, so that the appropriate minds are in the appropriate bodies, she asks once again for forgiveness. And they say, maybe. To which Margali responds, I look forward to the day wholeheartedly. Till then, fare thee well, children.
wherever your ways may wind. Okay, on one hand, that's a clever way to say goodbye. On the other hand, given the context of the winding ways, she's just basically said that they're her magical rivals now and she's going to murder them. She is not a good mom. She is not a good mom at all. No. No, no, she's really not. Although, as far as I know, she never trapped her kids' minds in puppet bodies. Which is definitely something that the Maximoffs did. Well, I guess that's something. So, yeah, Amanda is now, by default, the only magic-y person still in limbo with enough power to control it. So, she does. Oh, and she also resurrects all the dead circus people, who I guess Margali only slightly killed? I am really glad that they sort of survived. Were they supposed to have been transformed into gargoyles? Because that seemed like what was going on, but I'm not dead certain. Unclear. The art and the dialogue don't quite line up here. They may have been, but the point is, they're okay. They can go, you know, have appropriately themed German names and perform in the circus again, in the woods of Winseldorf, where I don't even know if they would really have an audience. And Nightcrawler and Amanda bid each other a tearful goodbye, after which Nightcrawler straight up flies a plane out of limbo. Yeah, he's got Excalibur's Midnight Runner. How, how, did it, how did it get in there? I have absolutely no fucking clue. Well, anyway, off he goes, and uh, Amanda remains to rule Limbo alone with a bunch of demons. We'll actually see more of her coming up for a while. She's going to be in the X-Men Black Sun miniseries as the ruler of Limbo. There will be an X-Men Magic miniseries about her because she will take the name Magic with a K in homage to Limbo's former ruler, Ilyana Rasputin. So that's kind of cool. I always liked Amanda Sefton. I mean, Jermaine Sardos. I mean, Daytripper. I mean, magic. Whoever she is, this is not even the end of this particular story that she's in, because we get a bit of a tag. It's in the wastes, the soul sword emerges blade first from the ground, held by a metal gauntleted left hand. It's definitely one of those, the end, or is it, kind of ends. But, okay, that's cool, because... Who wields the soul sword and wears armor on their left upper extremity? Like, that's Ilyana Rasputin. That's yeah. magic. The implication is that magic is somehow coming back with the soul sword having impaled itself into the ground of Limbo. Which actually would have been a really cool way to bring her back at this point if you were going to. But they don't. Next time we see the soul sword, it's in Amanda's possession. And... That's the end of that, so that those, I think those are our last Excalibur side stories before we wrap up the main series. I think they are, and uh, so between the two, what do you think? What do you think about each of them? I like Brian Hitch's art. I like Calafiore's Belasco. I think the writing in both is adequate, but they feel very fill-in-y. Like, they, they don't feel like they add much. Um, I think I'm more inclined to forgive that of the X-Men Unlimited one, because it's it's one of a, a anthology series, because those do tend to very much be side stories than an issue that bills itself as as a solo title. But I just, I, they're fine. I mean, they're, they're, they're just fine. There's a, a lot of the 90s right there for you, a lot of the late 90s, just fine. I think I'm a little more charitable, especially toward the Colossus one, because it is fun. And weirdly, I think I'd be much more charitable if it called itself Colossus and Megan rather than just Colossus. Ditto. Yeah, it's not a Colossus story, but it is very much a story about the dynamic between Colossus and Megan. There is the hook right there. That's what they should have focused on. I mean, the story did, the art did. It's just for whatever marketing reasons, the title did not. Yeah, and it's it's not a Colossus story. It's It's a story about the two of them and their friendship. 
and you know, death traps in French Disney World, but not like actual French Disney World, the Marvel version of French Disney World. With that, you've got questions. Hazel asks via email, Was there ever a cold open you did only to figure out afterwards that the continuity on that topic was even more ridiculous than what you shared on air? Or where there was ridiculousness you couldn't fit into the cold open and haven't been able to fit into the podcast some other way? Well, we, we tend to research them pretty exhaustively, so, so the first situation doesn't really come up much. And I don't have a specific example in mind, but we do definitely curate the cold opens to have a certain shape, and sometimes that involves picking and choosing what details to include in them. So, for instance, today's cold open omitted the fact that Ronan was also briefly a guest at the Wilfred's farmhouse before destroying it, and that he destroyed it while under the control of the Supreme Intelligence. Stupid big green face, destroying farmhouses all the time, and also entire planets. Yeah, man, the Kree, the, the, the Kree Supreme Intelligence is a dick. For real. So, I rarely write cold opens myself, just here and there. So I mostly just get to be delighted by the bizarreness as we're putting the episodes together. But on the topic of ridiculousness in cold opens, I've got a call out the cold opens that Al Kennedy wrote and suggested while he was subbing in for you earlier this year, Jay, that Marvel UK stuff is bananas, and I can only imagine how much madness there just wasn't room to put into those cold opens, but still very much existed. Yeah, I've been getting to have the same experience a little bit, because as you may have heard in the credits, Max Carlton has been helping us out on and off with cold opens for the show. And Max knows deep, deep weird continuity way outside of the X of X spaces in the Marvel Universe. Like, he, he probably has the most thorough, thorough knowledge of Marvel continuity of anyone I've ever met. So I'm getting to see all this weird stuff that I would never have encountered, again, encountered organically either. Oh yeah, Max's brain is the best kind of wacky comic encyclopedia. So Dark Portent Blog asks on Tumblr, My son is obsessed with Spidey and his amazing friends, the violence-free preschooler version of Spider-Man. If you were going to make an X-Men show for five-year-olds, what characters do you think would work best? Spidey also only uses three villains over and over and over again, so what three X-Villains could cause low-stakes drama that can be resolved without punching? Oh, I love this question for a couple of reasons. First, because my godson really, really loves this show, and we have played, like, Spidey and Doc Ock a number of times running around the living room. That kid's got so much more energy than I do. And second, because the predecessor to that show, the 1981 cartoon, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, was my jam when I was a little kid. I may have actually watched it around the time I was five. The violence was pretty tame, but probably still not a great role model show for a a preschooler. But it was so much fun. It's on Disney+. Plus. I'm not going to say Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends holds up, except for the Waka Chicka soundtrack, which is wonderful. But it does have some goofy X-Men shit, at least. Is that the one where Thunderbird can turn into a bear? It is the one where Thunderbird can turn into a bear, yes. And he's all the better for it. I mean, I guess depending on circumstances. If you need to be a bear, then might as well be a bear. Anyway, great question. So, I don't know, Jay, what, what do you think? So, I was thinking about this, and I think two heroes I would probably include are Jubilee and Shadowcat, because they're both a little younger. They've both got powers that repurpose away from violence very, very well. And I'd like to see them collaborate more. I would... Definitely stick Doug Ramsey in there at least sometimes, maybe not as main cast, but I feel like he would be a good person to include on and off. And I'm not sure who else. I guess I, I, I'm kind of inclined to default to Iceman just because he is, of course, a long-established amazing friend. Yeah, one of the reasons I love Iceman is because he was one-third of the Spider-Man and his amazing friends cast along with Spidey and Firestar. Well, Spider-Man. I should disambiguate here. I might also include Wolfsbane. Uh, For one thing, she would be adorable in that show's art style, but her powers also can be very nonviolent. She's got a different personality. 
Or maybe Storm, although a kid version of Storm might bring up too much complicated continuity for any grown-ups who read 80s X-Men. But a character I'd love to see in a show like that, maybe as a side character, like you were saying uh, with somebody like Doug Ramsey, would be Prodigy from New mm-hmm. X-Men Academy X. His ability to have the knowledge and skills of anybody he's near would be so good for a show that was trying to be educational. So, alright, those are heroes. What about villains, if we have to limit it to just a few? Okay, definitely Arcade, because he would be he would do puzzle-themed traps that weren't death traps in this, um, and the heroes would have to think their way out. I like the idea of Jamie Braddock or the crazy gang, with, with the weirdness but not the sadism. And third, ah, oh god, I keep on going back to Doctor Doom, because I feel like Doctor Doom would work really well in that format, but at the same time, he's not really an X-Men villain. Oh wait, no, 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 no got it. The Vanisher. Nice. Uh, I kind of want a kid show version of horticulture. I mean, cute old ladies who have to continually be reminded of how humans and nature should coexist instead of doing whatever the preschool safe equivalent of eco-terrorism is. But uh, no, I I think The Vanisher would be the best. The Vanisher is kind of already a kid show villain. He's just so petulant and petty and his powers are only very situationally useful and totally non-destructive. Exactly. All right. So there you have it. Kitty and her amazing friends. I would watch the hell out of that. We are an entirely listener-supportive podcast, despite the recent Patreon billing snafu that cancelled a lot of subscriptions accidentally. So uh, if you were supporting the show on Patreon, you might want to double-check that you still are. Anyway, some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today, the microphone goes to the one, the only, Arcade. Presenting the latest contestants in the greatest game show of all, Murder World! Where else do you see this kind of heart, this kind of spirit? Where else but a place where the stakes are literally life and death? Miss Locke, let's bring out today's contestants. Miss Locke, contestants! It's like you haven't been the same since I murdered you in that surprisingly dark Wolverine and Gambit story and replaced you with a robot. Good help is hard to find, right folks? First, in the buzzsaw room, we have Golgarifield. Wait a minute, Golgarifield? That's a different game than the one I set up. We don't even have green and black mana in the buzzsaw room. Or would that be orange and black? Anyway, buzzsaws! Better step lively, friend, while you still have toes to step with. And second, chambered in the ever-classic pinball death machine, that one's for you, Jay, it's Carson Curry! Ah, some great alliteration there. And he shares a surname with a very dramatic actor. Let's see if you can play the part of someone who survives, Carson. Time to pull back the plunger and... Go! I tell you, folks, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. And you can check out explainthexmen.com for a visual companion to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we're back to the X-Men. With the secret origin of Maggot. Maggot.